0: Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders and a pastor here at the church. We're very blessed that you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're blessed to see the guys here from camp or for camp. Uh, This is a very, very big week for us as a church community. And uh, so I, I agree with James. Pray. Please pray. If you're engaged in serving, which many of you are, serve and pray. But pray. Pray that the Lord would meet these young people, these youth, the emerging generation, our children and our youth, it's a silly cliche, but they are the future, and it is responsibility that God has put upon us to make sure that we reach them. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse nine. Now we've been discussing for the last few months, and by the way, I'm just going to warn you up front. I'm going to go a little longer today. I'd normally try to keep it below 30 minutes, but it might eke over beyond that. So Jay's going to be very excited. Yeah, I knew that was coming. But I'm going to try to be as expeditious as I can be. There's a lot to cover. I could cover a whole lot more. Uh, But at any rate, we have been discussing about how God has called us to be set apart, to be holy as He is holy, to be as the New King as the King James Version says, peculiar, or a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into marvelous light. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are distinct. We are to be different, not the same as our culture. And so what we've done over the last few months is we've looked at how we are to be um, in loving relationships instead of expressing our individualism. And instead of following ideologies that can become idolatries, we are to follow Jesus, and instead of indulging ourselves in a culture where anything goes, we are called to be holy, and instead of living a life of outrage, a lot to be outraged about, we are called to live a life of peace, and instead of optimization towards productivity, we're called to abide in Jesus and to be fruitful in him. And instead of hurrying ourselves with all the noise and busyness of our day, we're called to be still and know that he is God. We're called to pray. Now, if you think any of those were dicey, look at what's on tap for today. We are called, and I apologize to the fathers in advance, mothers thought they had it bad when I talked about sexual immorality on Mother's Day, but today I'm talking about gay pride. Uh, On Father's Day, so dads, you get your dose too. A community of truth and grace in a culture that celebrates pride. First Corinthians chapter six and verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness excuse me that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. (laughs) But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but I bet you have. In a very short period of time, our culture has moved past the yearly nod towards the LGBTQ community to something more likened to a religious holiday, lasting an entire month. And it's shocking, really, to see how quickly and how far retailers and corporations and amusement parks and sports teams and even the White House will go to celebrate Pride. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman says that this rapid social shift that is occurring around us regarding human sexuality, sexuality is actually tied to the deeper transformation in how we view ourself. Put simply, the modern person in our day and age is now seen as an untethered self who looks inward, not upward, not outward, but inward, for one's identity, one's meaning, and one's direction, which is definitely not what the Bible teaches. And it puts, because of that, the church that follows his word in opposition to the culture of our day. You see, the Bible teaches that we are created beings And our identity is not something that we construct based off of our experiences or desires. But our identity is something that is given to us by our Father and Creator. And so, in this culture, how do we as a community that holds to biblical truth engage a culture that looks inward to determine one's sexual or gender identity? And how can we be a community that speaks truth in our world while exhibiting Christ-like grace and compassion? Now, this is a tall order that I've served up for us today. If anybody would like to volunteer to come do it for me, come on up. Uh, I won't come close to covering all of the issues surrounding this. But I I hope, and it is my earnest prayer, that we can get more of God's perspective on it. Because as his disciples, we have a goal. It is to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. That's the disciples' goal. Our goal for us as disciples is to be with him, become like him, and to do what he did. Now, first... Let me just speak to any of those that may be sitting here today or watching online who are struggling with same-sex attraction or who see themselves as gay, lesbian, bi, fluid, or maybe troubled or confused by what the Bible says about it. I want to say to you that I understand. It's been my struggle. I struggle with this area. And it started when I was a teenager, an encounter that left me so ashamed that I couldn't tell anyone about it. And for a long while, it seemed like I wouldn't have to because it went dormant for almost 20 years. While I tried to pursue the Lord and did earnestly and get married and have children, but in a season of spiritual burnout and exhaustion, the attraction and the temptation came back at me with a vengeance. Now, most people here in this church, if you're new, you may not know this, but most of you that have been around know this story. I left the ministry, and then I left my wife and our children after 15 years of marriage. And I gave myself to living a gay lifestyle. Now, my story and our story is one of many heartbreaking moments, but I can... Gladly say today that it's also full of God's breathtaking redemption. Amen. Amen. He relentlessly pursued me and his love recaptured my heart and reoriented my life around him. And by God's grace, Don and I were restored in marriage, which is wonderful. And I was restored to my children, which is wonderful. And really surprising to me, God, over time, restored me to his call to care for his people. Now I won't go into why it took so much time because I was reluctant. I didn't feel like I uh, was worthy of that. And Jesus reminded me I never was. And then I said, but I'm not qualified. And he said, you never were. (laughs) And so then when he finally got through to me, God has restored in, in just June 1st, celebrates nine years as the pastor here at this church. And I just have to say, to God be the glory. Amen. Yes. But when I talk about this stuff, I get it. I've lived it. I understand the temptation. I understand the urge. I understand the pull. But I also realize that my story is not your story. And I know people who've had similar struggles, but their journey is vastly different than mine. So I don't assume that the way Jesus has led me is the way that Jesus will lead you. But what I do believe is that Jesus has prepared to lead both of us, to lead all of us. But he's going to eventually bring every one of us to this fact that his word teaches, teaches truth. And it's truth that can't be conveniently changed. His word teaches that same-sex sexual intimacy is not his design. In fact, it's sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, it's not sin that's gone too far, but it is definitely sin separating us from God and his will for our lives. But by the way, let me remind us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's no different than what someone else is dealing with, with respect to you can't handle your own sin. It takes a God that loves you to handle that for you. But here's the good news for all those that may be struggling. God does have a design for us. And that's good news because trying to define your identity by what you feel or who you want to be or what you lust after may be appealing, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's never life-giving. It promises so much more than it delivers. But then again, sin always does. And when we find our identity in him and not in ourselves, not looking inward, but rather looking upward, then life is not only better, but it's abundant. It's full of his life. It's the Zoe, the God life. Now, I think the best place to see God's design is at the front of the book, is at the front of this book. And when we start there, we realize that every single human being is created in the image of God. And we should remember that every time we're exchanging dialogue or being upset with someone or being mad with what they're doing, every human being is made in the image of God. And every human being is deserving of infinite dignity, and they have worth and they have value in God's eyes. Now, I realize we sully and muddy up the things that God has given us, but we all do that. And God still sees the image of God in each of us. We see that in the first chapters of Genesis, but we also learn that when he created man, he created us in male, as male and female. And that that differentiation is significant to how God has called us to live, to how we image God, male and female. So if you want to look with me in Genesis 2, verse 18, or you can see it on the screen, we're gonna read this account. The Lord God said, Genesis 2, 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. What a great job Adam had. I've got some questions, but he had a great job. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. <laughs> like it. That's some power. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, oh, wow. You come here often? (laughs) I'm thinking of all the cheesy pickup lines right now. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is invited, excuse me, and united and invited to his wife. And they become one flesh. This is such an incredible account. I don't want you to get hung up in all the science and different things like that, okay? This is a beautiful, poetic account of creation. And it is where we see that creation has beautiful order and that there is human purpose and there is flourishing. This is the garden as it should be. This is, by the way, the dynamic that we are going to In the new heaven and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem, we will return to this kind of shalom, this kind of flourishing, this kind of purpose, this kind of beauty. But this is also a primer on gender and human sexuality. And out of it comes the key question what makes a helper suitable for Adam? What makes a suitable helper? Now, the progressive vision, and by the way, when you look at things around gay issues, gender issues even, there is typically in the church a more progressive wing of things where it is a very liberalization, and there is a more conservative, or what I would call a historical account. Because, by the way, every denomination, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, it didn't matter Up until the 1960s, every single one saw this the same way. But in the last 50 years, there has been a variance in certain groups, a splintering around how we see these issues. And in those that are in the progressive wing of things, they would say that what Adam needed was not necessarily a woman, but a human. And it was Eve's humanity, not her gender, that made her suitable. Couldn't be an animal, so it had to be another human. That's that's what the progressive wing would say. And that it was Eve's humanity, not her gender, that made her suitable to Adam. But a deeper dive into the passage does not support that. And so we're going to take that right now. Because the Hebrew word for suitable is the word konegdo. And it is a... It is a complex compound word, and it's only used these two times in the Old Testament here in Genesis 2, 18 and 20. This word suitable, konegdo, is only used these two times. Now, konegdo is a compound word that is made up of ke, the Hebrew word, which means as or like, and also neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. And so together, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. (laughs) Some of you married people are thinking, yep, I can relate to that. (laughs) It captures how Eve qualifies as a suitable partner for Adam. In his book, People uh, to be Loved, and I'm going to read two long excerpts from his book. Preston Sprinkle writes this. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then he would ke, like, then, excuse me, the word ke, like, would have been just fine. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God uses the word konegdo. This word potentially conveys both similarity, ke, and dissimilarity, neged. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is ke, like Adam, but she's also a female and not a male, which is why she is different from Adam. This matters. The progressive side would say he just needed another human. God said, no, he needs one like him who's different. Sprinkle goes on to say, It's striking too that the sexual difference of man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 appears to reflect many other differing pairs embedded in creation. This is the beautiful poetic side of this story a creative display of diversity that complements each other. God and creation, light and darkness. Earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. <laughs> creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of differences interacting with each other. The coming together of male and female in marital and sexual union is the height of creation's astonishing youth union of otherness. Now, some might be sitting here or listening and saying, yeah, but that's just describing what happened. It's not prescribing what must happen. And I would say I disagree. Because this is not the only place we see this in Scripture. We see it in other places. In fact, Jesus himself highlights it as he is correcting some faulty views on divorce, these Pharisees come to try to trap him. They're talking about divorce and he's correcting them. But while he's doing it, he's using this like a pulpit to preach about maleness and femaleness, God's original design. And he says this to them in Matthew 19, verse three. Some Pharisees, Came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, not to another husband. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, these passages show us God's design. There are a lot of other passages I wished I could have pulled out today. Um, There are a lot of other verses that speak, some people call them clobber verses. I choose not to see it that way. There are verses that speak to what we read 1 Corinthians 6 earlier that talked about the sexually immoral and also those who practice homosexuality. But I want you to understand that what these passages are giving us a foundation for is the otherness that was necessary for Eve to be joined to Adam. And that it was an intentional necessity and a beautiful experience in marriage and sex. And that is as God intended it. Now, again, I wish that I had time to dig further into passages, and maybe we will at some point. I wish that I had time to answer questions that are asked by so many today. Things like, are people born gay? Uh, Is the sin of attraction uh, just like the sin of sexual behavior? Or should a person call themselves a gay Christian? Those are questions that get asked by a lot today. Then those that are a little more in opposition to the word of God, they might say, yeah, but the Bible got wrong slavery and the treatment of women. So he probably has got this wrong too, right? And then some would say that pushing this in the scripture is harming young gay and trans kids and not doing them good. Maybe at some point I can get around to those questions. Or if you have real interest, I would be happy to sit down and talk with you one-on-one or give you resources, books to read, people to listen to so that you can explore it for yourself. But this morning, I just want to make a couple of other points before closing and talking about how we as the church are also called to demonstrate his love to a world that is dying and to those who are struggling. First, we need to be eyes wide open about the demonic agendas surrounding many of these issues in our world. They are being driven by spiritual forces of darkness. And there is no doubt that there is a militant agenda driving so much of it. It's no longer okay just to let them be. Now there must be endorsement of lifestyle. They're demanding full submission to like a new orthodoxy. And it has an agenda to indoctrinate the youngest and most vulnerable among us, all in the name of tolerance and protection. It's hideous, it's demonic and we should have our eyes wide open to it. But I also wanna remind us that we are not to be afraid. We are not to walk in fear. We have God's word to guide us and we have his spirit to empower us and we have weapons of spiritual warfare. They are not carnal or of flesh and blood. So stop beating up the homosexuals, okay? They are spiritual. They are mighty for pulling down strongholds that hold people captive. I also want us to remember that it's not our job to bring conviction. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And he does a much better job at it than we do. (laughs) We can bring condemnation. We oftentimes do. He brings conviction. And that's what's necessary. And still, loving others in the midst of this does not mean that we fully endorse what they're doing or champion their cause or celebrate their pride. My wife and parents didn't cheer me on as I walked away. They didn't pat me on the back and tell me that I was brave or they were so happy that I was finally happy. That wouldn't have been true. First of all, I wasn't happy. And they weren't happy about it either. But they did stand firm with me. She stood firm with me. She did believe God. She prayed. And God did the work. That's how we're supposed to live. I see Christians going one extreme or the other. They either cheer them on and celebrate everything as if it was normal and it was okay and this is how it should be. And it sends a mixed signal that doesn't make us a distinct witness to what God has called us to be. It makes us an endorser of something that is evil and sinful and is deadly and does not bring life. So we can't celebrate that, but we can't condemn them either. There is a way in which we shouldn't be around the injustice they may feel because they're gay and nobody understands, but we should also not be around, well, that's immoral and by golly, you can't come in my presence until you get it straight. What we should be doing is what Jesus did, which was invite us in to his life where freedom can be gained. Finally, in the midst of all this, we must remember that we have his command to love others. And to walk with anyone who has a desire to come out of the darkness into the light. And when people are moving towards him, that's the one. I don't care how involved they are in a lifestyle. If there is a hunger and if there is the moving of the spirit and there is an earnest desire to learn more about it, I'm going to get to know them and I want to be their friend. And I'm going to cheer them on in that pursuit, not the other. We are called to love. Now, you know Matthew 5 and 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Everybody knows that. If you don't, uh, come to church more often. <laughs> Matthew 5 and 7, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. And among other things, he elevates sexual holiness. He elevates it. <laughs> he ratches it up to the point that nobody can keep it. Uh, This is the, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off sermon. Remember that one? Uh, And where Jesus says, if you even look at a person with lust in your heart, you've done the deed. Who can live up to that? Here is Jesus Christ, the son of God, standing on a mountain, declaring the highest standards of living in his kingdom. So you would think that when he finishes this seminal sermon, that he'd go around reminding everybody about it, reminding them what he said. Maybe if it's today, he'd even write a book about it, do a podcast, make a a website, create a nonprofit. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do what the Pharisees would do. He walked down off the hill and immediately began forgiving and restoring and showing compassion to everyone who couldn't live up to the standard. He told the standard and then began healing and restoring and bringing everyone who couldn't live up to it, which is me, maybe not you, but it's me. Actually, it is you too. And he said, you're the one I came for. Like the adulterous woman caught by the religious leaders and dragged before Jesus, he didn't judge her. He didn't pick up a rock and throw it at her. He was the only one that could have. He forgave her. He restored her. He called her to a higher purpose. And that prostitute who shows up at the Pharisee's house while Jesus is dining with him and he's reclining at table and she shows up and stands at his feet and she is so overcome she begins weeping, and her tears washes Jesus' feet. And she lets down her hair and she dries those feet with her hair, and then she kisses his feet and then pours perfume all over the feet. Jesus is amazing. Did you notice he didn't ask either one of them if they'd heard his teaching on sexual purity? Jesus taught the highest sexual standards and yet sinners loved Jesus. He taught the Sermon on the Mount upholding the highest standard of sexuality and still he was their friend. The Pharisees weren't. I I wanna ask you this. What would the gay community say about the church today? Would they call us friend or would they call us enemy? And I realize we're not here to endorse and celebrate and pat them on the back, but I want to know, what has God called us to be to them? Friend or enemy? So that's why Paul could write to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, (laughs) He should have just included everybody. And such were all of you, the sexually immoral. That's pretty much everybody. Don't sit piously here and think that you're okay. (laughs) We all have things, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's why we gather, not because we're perfect, but because we're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are sanctified in him. Because we've been washed by his blood. As his disciples, we're not only to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus, we're to do what Jesus did. So, let me close. If you're here today or listening to this and you are living away from God, living in sin, sin of any kind, sexual sin, other kind of sin, but sexual sin in particular. If you're here and that's you, Jesus loves you. He is your friend. He is a friend to the sinner and he is here to forgive you and he is here to restore you and to give you life that is more abundant he is not here to harm you he is here to set you free you may not agree with his thoughts on sex and marriage but Jesus still loves you and he will not turn away from loving you he is patient because he wants you to know him That's why he came. And he will wait as long as it takes. He wants you to live the life that he has planned for you, where you are are living abundantly and freely and receiving his joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. When you're worn out from doing the things the way you want to do them, he will still be here. Turn to him and ask for help. And he'll be there before you can even utter his name. And I hope this church can be a church that walks alongside you and is encouraging and upholding to you. You know, I saw this video, and you may have seen these on Instagram. This lady who has cancer who's getting her head shaved because she's gonna lose all her hair. These always made me cry. And the barber is there trying to encourage her and trying to help her. And as she's looking in the mirror while her head is being sheared, he takes the shears and starts shaving his hair off. And of course she's flooded with tears. And I thought about that, I thought that's the kind of church I want us to be. I want us to be the ones that would identify with someone who's hurting and struggling that we'd shave our head to. And if you don't have these struggles, that's okay, because you still have a struggle. So in a culture that celebrates pride and self, we are called to be God's people, full of grace and truth. And his people, as the church of Jesus Christ, it is time to compassionately walk with those who struggle with these issues and to have place for them within our community, for they are valuable, made in the image of God and worthy of his dignity. And if we will love them as Jesus has loved us, we might just see the work of the Holy Spirit, bring them into faith. May the Lord give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Uh, this is my lovely wife, and one of the reasons we do this is because of the full restoration that God has made in our lives and our marriage, and I'm very grateful for her.
1: do. When Chris told me what he was going to talk about today, um, I'll be super honest. I said, really? (laughs) Yay! But I'm grateful that you're always obedient. There's really nobody that shouldn't respond today. Because either you've been there or you've been in an equally impossible place. That's right. Or you're trying to love somebody who's currently in an impossible place. Right. Chris and I have a day of the week where we pray and fast with people from all different walks of life about impossible things. Because we are convinced That God does the impossible. Luke says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so when I pray for us today, that's the heart I'm praying with. That whether it's you or somebody you love or somebody you're called to love that you're struggling to love right now, that you would remember that God delights in doing the impossible. When Chris came home, I said to him, I don't ever want to get over the wonder of it. I don't ever want to get to a point where we only remember what we have and not what we lost. And if you're sitting today and you're feeling pretty good about where you are, I would say to you, don't, don't get over the wonder. Every salvation is a miracle. Every time he makes our hearts soft instead of hard is a miracle. And it's wonderful. Last verse. 2 Samuel fourteen fourteen says, Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, we will die. Pretty depressing. (laughs) But it continues. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways. And in my copy, I have written, he never stops devising ways so that an estranged person does not remain banished from him. There is no far that is too far. That's right.
0: So we want to pray for you today. And I just want you to, like we did last week, wherever you are, whatever it is that is holding on to you, would you just open up your hands and let it go to God? Just let go of it. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of I'm taking my hands off of this. You're speaking to me, Lord, and I want to let go. But it's also a sign of I want to receive. Yes. I want what you have. Your invitation is not towards me fighting for the injustice of it all or standing against the immorality of it all. Your invitation is to come into the life that is more abundant above all. So receive from him what what he has. We're going to pray for you right now.
1: Father, we want to embrace your conviction. We want to say yes in any way that we can to what you're offering. You do not condemn, nor do you excuse, but you bring an invitation. And we want to accept it. So Father, wherever each person is, would you activate their faith to believe for the impossible, to believe that you can make hearts of stone, hearts of flesh, that you can redeem everything, that you can be a friend That you can make us friends. Father, I ask that you would set us free from pride, little p, the thing that makes us think we can do it by ourselves. That's right. The thing that makes us think our way is the one successful, sinful way that will ever happen. You stand bigger than it all. And you care deeply, eternally, and effectively for us. Yes, Lord. Yes, you do. Forgive us for being selfish and for being prideful and for being rebellious. Come and bring your kingdom to bear in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. That's right.
0: Lord, I pray for anyone here today or who's listening to this that is hopeless. For the person who who doesn't want what it is that hangs on. God, do we have a real enemy who wants to make it hopeless? Who wants to bring despair? But we have a very real Savior who brings hope and who breaks the despondency of the moment. And I pray for anyone that is feeling the weight of all of it and the hopelessness of it. I ask that the Holy Spirit, as only the Spirit of God can do, would penetrate that place of hopelessness and plant a seed, plant a seed of hope. Plant a seed, Lord, that you would water and that it would grow and it would turn into a harvest. And one day they could stand and look back and declare that God has done a new work in me. I pray against the work of the enemy in the name of Jesus. I stand against the forces of hell that are doing all they can to destroy life and to cause rebellion and to entice people into pride. We stand against those forces and we pray that the Holy Spirit would work a work of conviction and life change and altering where people are. In this struggle and in every other struggle that we face, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there would be a spirit of freedom in our midst. The people's chains would fall off. That the captive would be set free. That the blind would see. That the lame man would walk. And that we would all sing praises to God for what he has done. I once was blind, but now I see. Lord, I pray that that would be the kind of thing that happens in our midst, in our church, in our community. May it happen this week, Lord, at camp. May it happen throughout our week with all of us. May it happen throughout this year, Lord, that freedom would come to the captive and that it would be known that this place is a place where Jesus meets people who need him. We thank you, God, for your spirit here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.